thanks for tuning in this week to Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church plant located in the Pasadena area. It is our mission to save the lost, to equip the saved, to serve both the lost and the saved, and finally to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting from the beginning of a book and working our way through all the way till the end. It is our prayer that you would grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ through his word. Well, something I love when studying through the Bible is to see how God can drastically change someone's life. When someone accepts Jesus Christ as their Savior, when they surrender their life to him, when the Holy Spirit fills them and empowers them, there's just an amazing transformation that God can do in that person's life. And you see this over and over again as you read through the Bible and you look at individual lives. You see this transformation that God takes when he can take a a man who's really faithless like Abraham and turn him into a man full of faith that we call the father of faith or, or a man like Moses who is completely dependent on himself and then God transforms his life and now he's completely dependent on God and used to deliver the nation of Israel from Egypt. Or you see, as we have through the Gospels, fearful men like the disciples who God transforms and makes bold men who go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. Or he takes a man who's a murderer of Christians like Paul and turns him in and transforms his life into one of the greatest missionaries ever of all time. You see, we serve an amazing God who can completely transform people's lives. He can take people who are messed up in sin, who have all sorts of failures and problems, and transform us into something that he can use for his glory. You know, I'm amazed as I look at my life and where I came from and what I was and and the transformation that God has done in me and how he's been able to not only change me but also use me. And as I've listened to many of you share your testimonies of where you were and where you've come from and when you accepted Christ and what God has done to transform your life, it's just a regular reminder that God is in the business of transforming lives for his glory. He wants to change you ultimately so that he can use you to fulfill his purposes. He wants to do a transforming work in you so that he can then do a wonderful work through you. You know, one of the people in the Bible that God transformed that for me is one of the best encouragements because I relate a lot to this individual is Peter. God does a great transforming work in Peter. And here in Acts chapter 2, we're going to see the start of this transformation in Peter's life. Now, we just finished studying through the book of Luke, and in Luke, we see a lot of Peter that I'm sure most of us can relate to. You see, Peter was a man who had a lot of struggles with sin and failure. He was a man who put his foot in his mouth a lot and said foolish things, a person who thought more highly of himself than he ought to, a person who often argued about how great he was with the other disciples, A person who relied on his strength instead of relying on God's strength. A person who often didn't listen to the things that Jesus told him. A person who was given into fear. And probably one of the things he's most known for, unfortunately, is a person who denied Jesus. You see, I'm sure all of us can relate to Peter's failures, to Peter's foolishness, to Peter's fears, because those are things that we struggle with as well. All of us have failures. All of us do foolish things. All of us have fears in our life. And so as we look at Peter and we see a man who has all those issues, we can relate to a guy like that because we struggle with those things as well. 
And you know, in those moments, if you're anything like me, you've probably thought some things like, when I'm doing these sins, when I've failed in these ways, when I've struggled in this, you know, can God really use me? Could God really change me? Could God really transform my life? Look at me, or perhaps you say, look at my past and and look at what I've done. Could God really ever do something significant through me like I read with the people in the Bible? Well, the answer to that question is absolutely, yes, he can. God is in the business of transforming lives. He wants to take you and change you and use you for your glory. If you'll surrender your life to him, if you'll give it to him, say, here is my life, Lord, do with it as you please. He will change you. He will use you. He can restore broken relationships. He can restore broken marriages. He can change the most messed up people and turn them into people that God can use for his glory. That's exactly what he did in the life of Peter. You know, if you remember from last week, God has just empowered the 120 uh, servants of Christ there in the upper room with the Holy Spirit. And Peter is one of those individuals. And so we've seen Peter in the Gospel of Luke. And now there's this new transformation. The Spirit of God has now been given to Peter. And it has empowered Peter. And we're going to see it is going to change Peter. And there's a huge crowd that gathers around this upper room. As we noted last week, God empowers the Spirit, uh, brings the Holy Spirit, and uh, it gives uh, these uh, believers there this gift of tongues, and they're speaking, and they're praising God, and the people who are there are hearing it in their own language, which is not the language that they would have expected to be coming from that room. And so there's this big crowd that develops. And I want you to remember the last time Peter was in the midst of a crowd. The last time Peter had the opportunity to either stand up for Jesus in front of the crowd or to deny Jesus in front of the crowd. And if you remember from the Gospel of Luke, it doesn't end well for Peter. Over and over again, he gets the opportunity to stand up for Jesus, but he denies him three times. One of them to a servant girl who just says, you're surely a follower of Jesus, aren't you? And no, I don't know that person. Who are you talking about? And so Jesus had the opportunity, or uh, Peter had the opportunity to stand up in front of a crowd and He didn't do it. Now Peter finds himself in another crowd with another opportunity to either stand up for Jesus or to deny Jesus. And the situation really that Peter finds himself in now is even more daunting than the one he did before. Because before the crowd was just a small crowd around a little fire. Now, as we read this text, you're going to find that there's over 5,000 people in this crowd. It's a huge crowd that is there around the upper room. And so if Peter was afraid of a small crowd around a fire, how afraid is he going to now be in front of a crowd this large. And both crowds were hostile to Jesus. In both crowds, you have individuals that wanted Jesus dead and and wanted to destroy anyone who would preach or teach about him. Now, if this wasn't bad enough, the last time Peter encountered a crowd, all that they were accusing him of was being a follower of Jesus. But I'm sure the news has spread now that Not only is Peter a follower of Jesus, but he's a failed follower of Jesus because the reality of his denial was something that I'm sure was spreading, that people heard, that people recognized. And so if he was fearful of being known as Jesus' follower, probably even greater fear of being known uh, known as Jesus' failed follower, the one that couldn't even stand up for him in Jesus' greatest time of need. So Peter encounters this crowd He knows many have seen his failures. 
He knows they can accuse him of much worse than being Jesus' disciples. And if that wasn't bad enough, add to the fact that you have no time to prepare a message. There's this huge crowd, and you have this opportunity to stand up, and we're going to see Peter here preach the first message ever preached as the church has now just been established. But he hasn't prepared anything. There's no notes. He's just going to get up there, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and just proclaim a message. You know, one of the top fears that people have is public speaking. And one thing that makes public speaking all the worse is when you're not prepared to get up and say something. It's bad enough to have to do it, but when you don't know what you're going to say, all of a sudden the fear, you know, kind of gets a lot worse. You know, I take teaching the Bible very seriously, and so I always try to be as prepared as I can to teach, but there has been a few times in my life where I was put in a position where I was asked to teach something at the last moment, and I had nothing prepared. Uh, I remember when I first started the church in Scotland, uh, I met this pastor who was over the Salvation Army and over there, you know, there's, you know, here we mainly associate that with, you know, giving to poor and things. But, you know, they had this big youth event where a couple hundred youth were coming and he was the main speaker and he says, oh, can you come and just listen and, you know, to see what God's doing with the youth? And I thought, oh, great. So I go to support him, and about 10 minutes before it starts, he gives me a call and says, hey, you know what, I'm in air, which is like 45 minutes away, the trains are down, I can't make it. Would you speak to this crowd of kids that I'm supposed to be the speaker for? You know, I didn't come with anything prepared. I wasn't expecting to have to deliver any message, and so, you know, definitely I was filled with a bit of of fear because I didn't have the preparation that I would have liked. You know, Charles Spurgeon had a, a college called the Preacher College. And it was a tradition to give students a text just randomly. I'm sure all of us love those pop quizzes that we get at school. Well, that's what they did in this college. They would just give them a text when they came in, and they would ask them to teach on it right then. In front of Spurgeon, in front of all the staff, they would just have to stand up and deliver a message. Well, one of the students was given Zacchaeus as his subject. The student stood and said, Zacchaeus was of little stature, and so am I. Zacchaeus went up a tree, and so am I. Zacchaeus came down. And so will I. And he sat down and stopped. Now, my teaching went a little bit better than that when I was in front of these uh, youth. But at the end of the day, there's this fear that comes when you're not prepared. And that's the situation that Peter finds himself in, this passage that we're going to look at this morning. He's not ready for this message, but yet he's going to deliver it because there's been a change in Peter's life. You would think he'd be much more fearful because he's speaking to this huge crowd that could accuse him of being a fallen, failed disciple. But something has changed in Peter from the last time that we saw him. He's now been empowered by the Holy Spirit. And we're going to see being empowered by the Holy Spirit is going to change how Peter responds, not only to the crowd concerning Jesus, but how he responds to reaching them with the gospel. The power of the Holy Spirit is going to change a fearful Peter into a bold Peter. It's going to give Peter the wisdom to proclaim the first message ever that launched the early church. Now, something important for us to understand is the empowering work of the Holy Spirit. As we looked at that last week, it's really for three main purposes. And don't miss the purpose because there are uh, you know, churches that miss the purpose of the power of the Holy Spirit. First is to be a witness of Jesus Second, to boldly preach the gospel. And third, to edify the body of Christ. And what we're going to see here in the text that we're going to look at this morning is the Holy Spirit accomplishes all three of these things in Peter's life. Peter is a witness for Jesus. The gospel is boldly proclaimed by him. And the body of Christ is going to be edified. 
You see, the empowering work of the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit, they're not for a show. They're not for me to say, oh, look at me and look what God has empowered me to do. It's not about pointing to me at all. The purpose is to help be a witness for Jesus, to help you boldly proclaim the gospel of what Jesus has done and to edify the body of Christ. So when people try to use the gifts of the Spirit for other reasons besides being a witness for Jesus, proclaiming the gospel, edifying people, they've kind of missed the point. You know, I grew up in a church where it was really a show. It was all about the individual and the gifts that they had, and and they missed the whole purpose and point of why God gives those gifts to begin with. You know, every time in the book of Acts when we see the gifts of the Spirit being used, we see at least one of these three purposes being functioned, and and usually all three of them at the same time. When spiritual gifts are used in Acts, it results in witnesses for Jesus, it results in the gospel going forth, and it results in the body of Christ being edified. And that's what we're going to see here through Peter. Now, as we look at the Holy Spirit work in Peter's life, I want you to be encouraged, and I also want you to be challenged, because all of us can look at our lives and we can see how we have failed the Lord. How we failed in following him, how we failed in being obedient to him, how we failed in similar ways to Peter. But you know, God wasn't done with Peter, even though he failed him. Instead, we're going to see that God empowers Peter and changes Peter and transforms Peter and uses Peter in quite amazing ways. And the same is true for you and me. God isn't done with you because you failed, with him, failed him. Instead, he wants to empower you, he wants to change you, and he wants to use you. So be encouraged and challenged by the work we see in Peter's life because it's the same work that God wants to do in you and wants to do in and through me. And as we look at the details of this message that Peter proclaims, it's a wonderful message that you and I should be ready to proclaim to those who don't know Jesus in this culture that we live in. So a crowd of several thousand people have gathered to where Jesus' followers are there in the upper room. And this crowd has heard people speaking in tongues, and they've responded with two responses. Whatever could this mean? And they're just drunk. So some are, are amazed. Well, what in the world could this mean that these people are speaking in, in my language that they've never been taught or known? And others are just kind of dismissive of it, and all oh, they're just drunk. And so that's where we left off last week, and now Peter is going to stand up and preach to this crowd. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 14. Let's see what Peter has to say. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and heed my words, for these are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. The first thing I want you to note is that we're told that Peter stood up with the 11 disciples. So not only is Peter empowered by the Holy Spirit, not only is he given boldness, but so are the other disciples. Because remember the last time that we saw them before Jesus rose from the dead, when Jesus was arrested, they all scattered. They all ran for fear. And now we see them all boldly together saying, you know what, we are now going to stand up for Jesus. So it's not just Peter who's been given this boldness. It's all the disciples given this boldness. And really, as Peter preaches, he's preaching as a representative of the whole group. Now, something else I want you to note is that the speaking in tongues, which began this whole thing, which the crowd gathered together, it now ceases as Peter seeks to proclaim the word of God. And this is something so important because last week we looked at order within spiritual gifts. And and one of the things we need to understand is that the Holy Spirit's not going to interrupt himself. And so as the word of God is being proclaimed, 
Tongues shouldn't be going on at that same time. Uh, And we see that uh, as we look at the book of Corinthians, uh, Paul shares with us that order. So Peter stands up, he raises his voice, and he says, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words, for these are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. Peter starts his message addressing one of the challenges that the crowd was giving concerning the gift of tongues. Remember, their response was, whatever could this mean? Or some were saying, these guys are just drunk. And so Peter first addresses the claim that they're drunk, and he reveals that's not the case at all. He says, first he just starts with a practical defense. Hey, guys, it's only the third hour of the day, which is nine in the morning. Okay? He's like, we're definitely not drunk. It's, it's only nine in the morning. Adam Clark, a commentator, says the most Jews, pious or not, did not eat or drink until after the third hour of the day because that was the time for prayer and they would only eat after their business with God was accomplished. So Peter just used a practical thing. Come on, guys, it's nine in the morning. We're obviously not drunk. Now, Peter could have gone on and given him a stronger defense saying, uh, how would being drunk you know, tell, okay, we got guys here who are sharing things in a language they've never known or never been taught. So how does being drunk, you know, uh, enable us to do that? He could have given a stronger argument if he wanted to, but he just starts off with a practical thing saying, this is not what's going on. We're not drunk at all. So the crowd's accusation against Jesus followers, it wasn't very strong and it wasn't very well thought through, but it was a way to dismiss the powerful work of God. And in our culture today, we see that a lot. People want to dismiss the work of God. And unfortunately, a lot of the things that they throw out there, they're not really that well thought through. Uh, It's kind of like this argument, well, you guys are just drunk, even though it makes no sense that you could speak in a language that you were never taught. Oh, yeah, if I drink a few, you know, beers or I, you know, pop down some whiskey, I'm going to start speaking another language. I mean, obviously, it's not a very well thought through argument. But, you know, in the culture today, we see that people just kind of throw out stuff because ultimately they just want to dismiss the powerful work of God. They don't have an answer for it, but they don't like it, and so they just kind of throw out whatever they can. You know, next week we're going to be looking at the evidence for the resurrection. I'm going to share some of the foolish things that the culture says with regard to the resurrection just to kind of dismiss it, and we'll be looking at that next week. Well, Peter, he gives some evidence. He helps them with their foolish claims, and and I think we need to be ready to defend the work of God to this unbelieving world as well. Peter, and he wrote in 1 Peter 3.15, says this, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. It's interesting, Peter writes this, and also Peter is one who expresses this in this time here. He's ready to give a defense for what he believes. And he challenges all of us as believers, be ready to defend, be ready to give an answer to those who ask you in this culture, in this world, well, why do you believe in Jesus? And I'm saddened oftentimes when I hear that question posed to Christians who have no response, no answer. We should be ready to answer people, well, this is why I believe in him. This is what he's done for me. I should be able to defend this wonderful truth. And so Peter says, be ready to do that. The culture oftentimes has questions, and we should have answers for them. And if you don't, then study, prepare, get ready for the questions the culture is going to bring. Peter starts his defense by showing the foolishness of the accusations against them, but now he's going to use the word of God to say, it's not that we're drunk, but let me tell you what really is happening, and I'm going to use God's word to show you what's really happening. Verse 16, 
through 21. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servant and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven and in above and signs in earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. After revealing, hey, we're not drunk. This is not what's transpiring here. What you're seeing, the power of the Holy Spirit, is not because we're drunk. Let me tell you what is the cause of this. And Peter, in defense of the great work of God, takes the crowd to the word of God. He shares with them from the prophet Joel. He prophesied that these things were going to happen. Peter is quoting from Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32, and it focuses on God's promise to pour out his spirits on people. And using the quotation from Joel, Peter explains what the curious onlookers are seeing. They're seeing the fulfillment of this prophecy. You're seeing what God prophesied back in the time of Joel, that he would pour out his Holy Spirit and that there would be supernatural things that would transpire. Your sons and your daughters will be prophesying. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. I will show wonders in heavens above and signs on the earth beneath. So Peter used the word of God to reveal to the crowd the work of God. And this is something we need to be doing as we defend what God does. Come back to the word. This is so important. The word of God is the source in which we should defend Christianity, defend the gospel, defend whatever it is that the world is bringing to us because there's an important promise concerning the word of God that I think we all need to understand. Isaiah chapter 55 verse 11 says this, So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. You know, in this verse, the promise that God gives us is when we proclaim the word of God, it is not going to come back void. When you tell some about something in the word of God, it's never a waste. It's never, oh, I shouldn't have done that. It can be a waste when you're just throwing out your own thoughts and opinions. But whenever you bring God's word, the inspired word of God to someone, it doesn't return void. There's always power and profit in doing that. So when we defend Christianity or just share with people about it, we need to bring them back to what God's word says. Not just, well, I think this and this is my opinion. Well, let me just tell you what the God's word clearly says about this issue or about whatever we're, we're discussing. You know, Romans chapter 10, verse 17 says, So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. If you want someone to come to faith in Jesus or grow in their faith of Jesus, what does the word tell us? They grow in that by hearing the word of God. It's the word of God that increases faith in people's lives. And so we need to be those who deliver the word of God to people. So Peter defends the work of God first by showing the crowd the foolishness of their accusation. We're not drunk. It's nine in the morning. Then by taking the crowd to the word of God to reveal to them what was actually happening. But I also want you to see that Peter uses the passage there in Joel to open up an opportunity to share the gospel. Notice how he ends the quotation, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
Peter reveals to this crowd the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. This is what it means. Joel prophesied it was going to happen. But then he ends with this previously unknown reality. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. Salvation is now available to anyone who will call on Jesus, Jew or Gentile, which was huge because the Jews of that time didn't think that the Gentile world had this wonderful privilege. And right from that statement, whoever calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved, Peter's now going to transition and give a great gospel message that we're going to look at. So here we see three things that Peter has done in response to the crowd that I think is a great example to us. First, Peter defends the work of God against the accusations the crowd was giving and shows their accusation was false. This is a good thing for us to be able to do. As I mentioned from 1 Peter, always be ready to give a defense for what you believe to this unbelieving world. Second, Peter takes the crowd to the word of God to reveal to them the work that God was doing. Peter used God's word to reveal God's work. And once again, this is another great thing for us to be able to do, to use the word of God that doesn't come back void to reveal the truth of God's work. Third, Peter used this opportunity to share the gospel. This is also a good thing for us to do. We should always be looking for and willing to proclaim the gospel as we have opportunities to do so. Well, Peter's got the opportunity. The crowd's there, and he's ready to go and share the wonderful news of the gospel. Let's see what he has to say. Verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourself also know. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. You know, I think many people, after, you know, hearing what Peter quotes in Joel, would think, well, that's all you need to share. I mean, look at what Joel proclaims in that. You have the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. You have miracles. You have dreams. You have visions. You have prophecies. You have signs and wonders. You have the coming of the day of the Lord. And you have an invitation to call on the Lord. Let's just stop there. That's all that needs to be said. I mean, look at all those wonderful things. But the reality is all of that is really just an introduction to the most important message of all. Peter recognized those are great things. Those are things we need to understand. But there's something far greater than that. And that is the truth of the gospel. Because up to now, he hasn't delivered that. Up to now, he hasn't clearly proclaimed to this crowd what the gospel is, what they need to do, who Jesus is. And so he doesn't stop there. He takes it a step further to proclaim the most important message that anyone can hear. So Peter starts off by saying, men of Israel, hear these words. This is so important. Peter wanted them to pay attention. He's already been sharing with them. He's already given this quote from Joel. And then he pauses and says, men of Israel, all of you are here. Hear these words that I'm about to proclaim to you. I want you to pay attention. I have something important to tell you is what ultimately Peter is doing. You know, sadly, this is something many teachers fail to do. When proclaiming the gospel, when proclaiming the word of God, they don't share it in such a way that they actually have something worthwhile to proclaim and say, hear this, this is important. 
know, the gospel message is the most important message that anyone's going to hear. And so we should deliver it in such a way that we say, hey, please listen, because there's nothing more vital for you to hear and understand than this message that I'm about to deliver. Peter's going to give a basically four-point sermon about Jesus. He starts with Jesus' life and ministry. He moves to Jesus' crucifixion, then to Jesus' resurrection, and then to Jesus' exaltation. He covers it all. And it's an amazing, great, short sermon that impacts those who are listening. Peter starts off by saying, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Peter starts off sharing about the life and ministry of Jesus here on this earth. And he doesn't really need to get into a lot of details as we might want to get into more details today because the crowd that he's speaking to, they were familiar about Jesus. They've seen Jesus. They, they saw these miracles. They knew about him. He was one of the most well-spoken of people for the last three years in that area. And so he doesn't have to give a bunch of details as to the, the life and ministry of Jesus because you know his audience was more familiar with it. But that's a great place for us to start as we're sharing with people to share with people first, you know, who Jesus is, why he came, the ministry that he did here in this world. But then we need to move to some other important things as well. Notice what Peter goes on to say in verse 23. Jesus being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death. Peter shares two essential parts of the gospel message here. First, the crucifixion was God's best. And what I mean by that, it was God who purposefully and willingly gave himself his best for us. He crucified, he willingly gave himself on the cross to die for our sins. You see, God loves you and I so much that he chose to give his life for us. I mentioned this in Luke. He wasn't forced to go to the cross. It wasn't nails that held him there. It was his love for us. He willingly chose to give his life. He willingly chose to give himself. He gave his best for you and for me because he loves us so much. Octavius said this, Who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. That was the ultimate reason. That's why Jesus went is because of love for you and for me. So first, the crucifixion was God's best because of his love, he offered himself on the cross. But second, the crucifixion was man's worst. It was mankind's sin that caused Jesus to have to go to the cross to begin with. Peter tells this crowd, you took Jesus by lawless hands and had him crucified. Now, I want you to notice something here. Peter doesn't flinch at this. He doesn't hold back and think, oh, this could be offensive to proclaim this truth. You know, they might not want to hear this. No, he just says it right out. You guys are the ones who crucified Jesus, the one who was sent by God. You see, Peter's first concern was not to please his audience. His first concern was to tell them the truth about their sin. You know, we live in a culture today, in the church culture especially, where people are shying away from the truth because they don't want to offend. They're shying away from the truth because they're like, oh, well, well people might want, not want to hear that. Well, we shouldn't be so concerned about what they want to hear, and we should be more concerned about what they need to hear. See, they need to hear the truth, and if we hold back the truth, then what are we doing? Because we're not proclaiming the one way that they can accept God and be saved and spend eternity in heaven, and how much do we have to hate the culture to deny them that wonderful truth? What a difference this is from the man who a few months ago denied Jesus to a little servant girl. 
Now he's willing to proclaim to this whole crowd, you guys are guilty of killing the Messiah, killing Jesus. Once again, the change in Peter is because he's now an empowered man by the Holy Spirit. He's now bold. He's now willing to speak truth. He's now willing to proclaim it in a way that he never was willing or able to do before. Something we need all to realize is that it was the sin, not only of people in Peter's day, but our sin today that brought Jesus to the cross. We're all guilty. We're the ones who brought him to be crucified because the only reason he came was because of our sins. It wasn't the Romans or the Jews of that time that are ultimately guilty. It's every single person who has sin, which is all of us. It is our sin that brought Jesus to the cross. John Stott, he said this, Before we can see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. That's something so important. It's not just, oh, look at the cross and what Jesus did for us. Also recognize the reason he had to go there is because of us, because of our sin. Our sin is what caused him to have to give his life. Peter goes on to share the next important part of the gospel message now that he's talked about Jesus' life and ministry and Jesus' crucifixion. Notice what he says in verse 24. Whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Well, now Peter shares about the resurrection. If you want to get even more details, we'll be focusing on that next week. How God raised Jesus from the dead. This is another essential part of the gospel. We don't just want to stop with Jesus on the cross because that's not where it ends. He then dies. He then stays in a tomb for three days. But the wonderful news is he is risen from the dead to conquer sin and death. We need to tell people that not only are they sinners, not only did Jesus die on the cross for their sins, but then he rose from the dead to conquer sin, to conquer death, so that they also can be those who God can enable to conquer sin and conquer death. Now, the crowd that Peter preached to, they saw Jesus die on the cross, so that wasn't a hard thing for them to believe, but something they desperately needed to understand and recognize and believe was the fact that he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead. So to help them understand this important fact, Peter once again comes back to God's word. Notice what he says in verse 25. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, and you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Peter here defends the resurrection and shows its importance by using two psalms that David wrote, which are both prophetic. They're speaking about the future. They're pointing to Jesus, the Messiah. The first psalm that Peter uses is Psalm 16. He reveals that David was speaking about Jesus when he says, For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. He throws it out there, and then he says, you know, I'm going to expound upon that. And he takes the psalm to help that them understand David wasn't just speaking about himself here. He wasn't talking about his own life. He was talking about the life of the, the Messiah. Notice what he says in verse 29. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. 
He foreseeing this spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Peter helps the crowd see, hey, what David is saying here in this psalm is not about himself. He's not speaking about himself. And he says, hey, he's dead and he's buried and we can go right over here. We could see his tomb. We know that David isn't speaking of himself because he's dead and he's buried. So obviously he must have been speaking about someone else. And Peter reveals that David was prophetically speaking about Jesus, about the Messiah, not about himself. Notice what he says in verse 32. This Jesus... God raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Here Peter uses another great proof to convince people of the resurrection. He's not only going to the word of God, he's saying, well, you know what, if you don't believe that, we're all witnesses of this. We saw the risen Jesus. So, you know, there's a a lot of overwhelming evidence. We'll be looking a little bit of that next week, that over 500 people at one time saw the risen Jesus. If you put them in a courtroom, that's pretty overwhelming evidence of that many witnesses to see Jesus risen and alive from the dead. And so Peter says, hey, we saw this. If you don't believe just what the word of God says, believe the fact that all of us witnesses are here to proclaim this is something that we saw. So notice Peter shares the gospel here. He gives biblical evidence. He gives practical proof to back up this message. And this is another good example is we share the gospel with people, especially when it's one-on-one and, and they have questions to, to give evidence. When you, you say something about Jesus, well, how do we know he actually existed or the crucifixion or the resurrection? It's good to be able to give evidence to back up what we believe and why we believe it. And once again, next week, I'm going to give you evidence for the resurrection that you'll be able to share with people. Peter goes on to say in verse 33, Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Once again, uh, Peter is quoting a psalm of David to back up what he's saying. Peter quotes Psalm 110 verse 1. And he revealed David wasn't speaking about himself when he said, I'm sitting at the right hand of the Father. He's speaking about Jesus. He's speaking about the Messiah. So Peter uses this psalm to show that it was Jesus who ascended to the right hand of the Father. It wasn't David who did this. And when Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, then he sent the promise of the Holy Spirit. See, the whole purpose of all this is is Peter's bringing them to the point of, you know, what could this be? What is this? Oh, they're drunk. No, we're not drunk. Actually, this was prophesied by Joel. And you want to know who sent this power? Who gave us the power of the Holy Spirit? It was Jesus. After he lived here and did what you saw him do, he was crucified. He rose from the dead, but it didn't end there. He went back and was ascended, and he's now at the right hand of the Father. And when he ascended, he sent the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is what you have seen, and this is what has transpired. Peter finishes his sermon in verse 36, saying, Therefore... Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. So Peter clearly preaches the gospel to this crowd. He shows that Jesus died for their sins, that he rose from the dead for their sins, that God made him both Lord and Christ. And he uses the word of God and he uses practical proofs to back up the gospel message. So God has done a real changing work in Peter's life. He has given Peter boldness and wisdom to share the gospel with this crowd, but the work of the Holy Spirit isn't done. He wants to do amazing things through Peter as well. 
And so Peter's finished with this message, and notice what happens in verse 37. Now when they heard this, speaking of the crowd, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Notice this, before Peter starts this message, there's two responses. One is you're drunk, and he, he dismisses that one after telling him it's only 9 in the morning. The other is, whatever does this mean? So the message starts with this mindset of, whatever does this mean? What's going on? And notice how it ends now. After Peter proclaims, this is what it means. This is what's transpired. Jesus, who lived this perfect life, who died on the cross for your sins, who rose from the dead, who ascended and sent the Holy Spirit, this is what it means. And now they have this other question. What shall we do? What do we do with this information? What shall we do? You know, I think it's fascinating to see what an incredible work of the Holy Spirit happens here. Because notice Peter doesn't offer an invitation. He doesn't, after he finishes his message, anyone want to accept Jesus? He just finishes, and the Spirit of God is working in the lives of those who are listening to this message, and they're the ones who ultimately throw out the invitation. What do we do, Peter? We've heard this, and we're told that they were cut to the heart after hearing the gospel message. You know, cut to the heart is a good way of describing the conviction of the Holy Spirit. The Bible tells us it's one of the roles of the Holy Spirit to convict us of our sin. He does a great job in revealing that we need a Savior, revealing that we need Jesus. You see, they knew that they were responsible for the death of Jesus, as are each of us because of our sin. And so they had something to do. What, what, what do we do? How do we respond? I think it's interesting that Peter had a little experience with cutting before this. Remember, as Jesus was arrested, he rips out his sword. He goes probably to chop off the, the guy's head, but he only gets his ear. And it's a big mess, and Jesus has to fix uh, the situation that Peter gets himself in. And so Peter in the flesh, he did his best with a little sword of cutting. But now, filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter cuts to the heart, does something far more effective far more impactful. Those who are hearing this message are now convicted of their sin, and they're in a place where they now want to respond to Jesus and the work that Jesus did on their behalf. So after this great gospel message, the crowd asks, what shall we do? And notice what Peter tells them to that, his response to their question, verse 38. Then Peter said to them, repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. What shall we do, Peter? He gives them two responses. Great responses. Maybe you're pondering that question right now this morning. What do I do with Jesus? What do I do with the fact that he lived a sinless life? He died on the cross for my sins. He was risen from the dead for me. What do I do with that? Well, Peter says the first thing that we need to do and what they needed to do was to repent. The word repent means to turn away from your sins, to come to God and to ask for forgiveness of your sins and to ask him to help you to turn away from them, to no longer continue with them. When we share the gospel with people, we need to be ready to tell them how to respond. And I've seen that. I've seen people who are just great at proclaiming the gospel, and then someone actually says, well, what do I do now? Uh, uh, I don't know. I mean, we need to be ready to say, well, great. You, now the next thing you need to do is you need to repent of your sin. You need to accept Christ. You need to ask for his forgiveness. We need to be ready if someone gets to that place where they're wanting to respond to tell them how they should respond. 
The second thing Peter tells him to do is be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. As we noted at the end of last year as we had a baptismal service here, baptism is not something that saves you, but it is an outward demonstration of an inward change that takes place in your life. And Peter, knowing in that culture as well, if you really want to follow Jesus and you want to say, I'm truly repented of my sin and that Jesus is going to be the one that I make Lord of my life and follow him, then why don't you outwardly demonstrate to everyone who's seen here that you truly have made that commitment by getting baptized? It wasn't something that saved them, but it was something that showed that they truly have accepted Christ, that they were saved, and now they want people to know it. They want people to see the work that God has done in their life. And so if you haven't been baptized as something you need to do. And if you haven't done it, come talk with me. We'll have another baptismal service. We'd love to do that for you. Peter also gives them a wonderful promise. He says, once you accept and believe in Jesus, the baptism of the Holy Spirit will be given to you as it was the followers of Jesus. The whole thing that started all this. Hey, not only will you be forgiven of your sins and you can get baptized in water as an outward demonstration of an inward act, but you know what? You can be empowered by the Spirit of God to live for him. So Peter tells them to repent and get baptized, and let's see how they respond here in verse 41. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. So he proclaims this message. There's this crowd. What should we do? How do we respond? Well, first you need to repent. And after you repent and and ask Jesus to forgive you and accept him into your life, get baptized as an outward demonstration of what God has done inwardly in your life. And we're told that over 3,000 people do it right there. The first sermon ever preached, that church has just been established. There's 120 people in an upper room, and now there's 3,120 people or a little bit more. So the Holy Spirit not only did a great work in Peter by empowering him with boldness, he also did a great work through Peter using that message to impact over 3,000 people, and the church is now born. And we're going to see great things happening as we continue through the book of Acts. Peter in the flesh was a failure. We saw that. We saw his many failures and many sins, but Peter now, empowered by the Holy Spirit, is able to do great things for God. And that should bring you comfort and encouragement because the power of God can do the same amazing work in you. God wants to change you. He wants to transform you. But it starts, if you've never done it before, with asking Jesus to forgive you of your sins, to repent of your sins, to come into your life, to fill you with his Holy Spirit. And even if you've done that in the past and you're feeling like, you know what, I'm a follower of Jesus. I've come and I've accepted him at some point in time in my life, but I haven't been really that good at truly following him and being obedient to him. And I want him to empower me, maybe in my marriage or in my relationships, or in my boldness to proclaim the gospel. And we're seeing this, and we're going to continue to see this through the book of Acts. The Spirit of God gives them boldness to proclaim the gospel, does miraculous things so people can hear the truth of what Jesus has done. God wants to transform your life. He wants to transform my life. He wants to work in you so that he can do great things through you. Let's pray. Lord, I'm so grateful that you don't only use the super spiritual. You take messed up, broken, sinful people, and you change us. I'm so grateful for the work that you did in my life 
how you changed me, how you showed me who you are, how you showed me what you've done for me, and that the day I accepted that, how you have continued to change me and to use me. We are so grateful that we serve a God who does that for us, who can take us and make us something different. As your word tells us, once we accept you, we're now a new creation. The old things, the old life is passed away. Behold, all things become new. If you're here this morning, you've never accepted Christ. You've never repented of your sins. You've never asked for his forgiveness. As everyone's eyes are closed, heads are bowed, if that's something that you want to do this morning, I want to give you that opportunity. Today, I want to give you the opportunity to make a commitment to Jesus, to ask him to forgive you of your sin, to ask him to come into your life. And the Bible says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So if you want to do that this morning, I'm just going to ask that you raise your hand. I want to pray with you. Anyone here who's never accepted Christ, you want to do that this morning? Thanks for tuning in this week to Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church plant located in the Pasadena area. It is our mission to save the lost, to equip the saved, to serve both the lost and the saved, and finally to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting from the beginning of a book and working our way through all the way till the end. It is our prayer that you would grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ through his word.